saw a mass pivot in third level education from in-person to remote online teaching and learning necessitated by the global COVID-19 pandemic. However, teaching is just one of the tasks of an academic and well-laid research plans were also shaken asunder by the spread of the pandemic and the related restrictions that followed. I'm Dr Yvonne Daly and I'm an Associate Professor in Law in the School of Law and Government at Dublin City University. I'm Dr Amy Muirhead and I'm a postdoctoral researcher working with Dr Vicky Conway and Dr Daly on this EU-funded project entitled The Right to Silence and Related Rights in Pre-Trial Suspects Interrogations in the EU, Legal and Empirical Study and Related Best Practice, which we call the MPRIZE project. Today we want to recount our experiences in adapting our research on the right to silence in police custody to the changed circumstances of this strangest of years. Before delving into the detail of that, we want to pause to acknowledge people directly affected by COVID-19, those who've been extremely ill themselves, those who have ongoing effects and are facing a long recovery or lifelong implications, those who lost loved ones and were denied the usual collective expression of love and grief because of restrictions those who've lost their livelihoods and those who've suffered with their mental and physical health due to isolation or the impact on other medical resources. In this podcast, we focus on the impact of COVID-19 on our research, but that's nothing compared to those whose lives have been touched by this scourge. So just to provide some background, our project focus is on the right to silence in police interviews and how it impacts other aspects of the criminal process in four EU jurisdictions, Ireland, Italy, Belgium and the Netherlands. The team at Dublin City University are working with colleagues across law, criminology and psychology at Maastricht University, Antwerp University and KU Leuven to conduct this research, which has both a doctrinal legal aspect and an empirical aspect to it. Following a kickoff meeting in Maastricht in April 2019, the first priority was to draw up country reports on the law relating to silence in police custody and to plan an international symposium on the topic which was held at DCU in October 2019. This interdisciplinary event brought together more than 40 academic experts on silence, as well as members of the judiciary and criminal practitioners. Other researchers will recognise the contented, even excited feeling that one gets when one is in a room full of people who are all truly, deeply interested in the same subject, which might be of no interest to many others. Zoom webinars are great, but can they really replicate the almost tangible buzz of a room like that? It was fantastic to have so many experts with us on that occasion, spurring us on with a sense of collective interest in and support for our research. With the legal reports completed, we then focused in earnest on our plans to conduct focus groups and semi-structured interviews with a variety of professional and lay actors across the criminal process in all four jurisdictions. In early March 2020, we held two focus groups in Dublin, each with 10 criminal defence solicitors, and these were fascinating. The solicitors discussed their approach to consultations with detained clients, the factors influencing the advice that they give, their experiences of sitting in on police interviews, and the impact of no-comment interviews at trial. As academics, it was really great to hear from practitioners about the day-to-day functioning of the statute and case law compiled in our legal report. There was a great dynamic in the room, with solicitors agreeing with one another at points, adding to what others had said, offering rejoinders at times or suggesting limitations to broad statements made by others. This, of course, is the very point of a focus group. We noticed also that while our solicitor participants were well used to delivering reasoned responses, at times an offhand comment was what really paved the way for rich discussion. This aligns with academic observations on the value of focus groups, 
So emboldened by these successful focus groups, we were keen to conduct more of the same with barristers and with staff in the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions. The venue was booked and the participants had signed up, but unfortunately, as of March 12th, Ireland implemented severe restrictions in response to COVID-19, and so any in-person data collection wasn't possible. Faced with the reality of COVID-19 restrictions, we changed both our research method, from focus groups to one-on-one interviews, and our medium, from in-person to remote interviewing. Our colleagues in the Netherlands had had some success in conducting small focus groups using an online video conferencing platform. But we decided to pivot entirely to interviews for these reasons. First, internet traffic. In what can now be regarded as the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, we had concerns that platforms such as Skype or Zoom could be overloaded with high volumes of internet traffic. Online focus groups could be more susceptible to being derailed by disruptions caused by poor connectivity than interviews, especially if multiple participants were finding themselves cut off or freezing on screen. Secondly, adding to working from home burdens. As with many other sectors uh, experiencing a rapid move to working from home, many of our participants were now juggling work, caring responsibilities and even homeschooling. This would make it harder to arrange a time that would suit a group of people. Interviews had the benefit of being more flexible for participants and easier to reschedule should their circumstances change. Thirdly, moderating an online focus group. The success of focus groups can rely on the moderator. We knew from our experience with the criminal defence solicitors that being able to moderate the discussion was highly dependent on being sensitive to micro-interactions, eye contact and a nod at a hesitant participant to encourage their input, or leaning forward to show that the moderator was going to interject to direct the discussion. We were dubious as to how well we would be able to moderate the focus group online in the absence of such subtle but important behavioural cues without stifling the organic discussion we were hoping for. Even now normal Zoom protocols, such as having to unmute oneself before speaking, can have this impact, creating another barrier to spontaneous interjection. Switching to -to one-to-one interviews obviously deprived us of some of the benefits of focus groups and added to the time commitment, as we needed to interview lots of people for one hour each, instead of bringing lots of people together for a two-hour focus group. We also had to reapply to the DCU Research Ethics Committee in order to allow for the remote conduct of the research, which had not initially been envisaged. There were many practical and ethical threads to our new design that had to be detangled, and these could be a whole podcast series in themselves. Participants were given the option to be interviewed via an online video conferencing platform such as Zoom or on the telephone. Some opted for Zoom, though more recently it seems that a level of Zoom fatigue set in and the majority were happier to speak on the phone. As the person who was conducting the interviews, I actually felt more comfortable on the phone and got the sense that participants did too. There's a lot going on on Zoom. As an interviewer, you want to make eye contact, but it's almost impossible to actually do that on Zoom. This is a little off-putting for both the interviewer and the interviewee. Similarly, in real life, we don't stare at each other throughout ordinary conversation, But what almost feels like looking away while on Zoom indicates disinterest, the exact opposite of what you're trying to convey as a researcher. So this adds an additional layer of complexity. It seemed that interviewees were able to get into their stride more on the phone, as they were perhaps more comfortable with the format and were chatting unimpeded by the additional strains of video conferencing. 
This is particularly interesting as the perception may exist that video conferencing is superior to phone interviews because of the ability to see each other. Indeed, in the early days of COVID restrictions, it seemed that Zoom was the default option. And there was almost an assumption that as a researcher, you wanted to get as close to genuine in-person interaction as you could. Video conferencing software seemed to be the best option in that context, and there may be an assumption that telephone interviews are inferior to video conferencing. But this methodological assumption shouldn't be taken as read, as our experience shows that other factors, like Zoom fatigue, for example, may mean that alternative options should be considered, even if it does shake up a pre-established order or feel counterintuitive. In total, I conducted remote interviews with 10 barristers, 11 prosecutors from the Office of DPP, and two judges of the Circuit Criminal Court. Two further judges of the Central Criminal Court invited me to meet with them at a social distance in their chambers when restrictions allowed, and it was very refreshing to do two face-to-face interviews in the midst of those which were remote. Our choice to replace in-person focus groups with mostly remote interviews had implications for data analysis as well. We find ourselves with many more hours of material that needed to be transcribed and analysed, as our aim to capture a range of experiences meant that many interviews were needed to engage with similar numbers of participants as we would have spoken to through focus groups. Instead of approximately four hours of material per group of participants, we have closer to 12 hours. This is not a comment on the benefits of one method over the other, as the value of the data from each method should not be compared on this almost quantitative basis, but it was definitely more of a logistical challenge for project management that has required some elasticity in our timeline. One benefit is that it is easier to keep track of who said what, and whether contradictory statements are made by one person alone in an interview. However, we did miss the interaction between participants that we had witnessed at our first focus group, where there was an opportunity for participants to point out discrepancies between their own experience and that of others, adding nuance and balance to the discussion in this way. One further practical issue that we encountered, and which we would advise other researchers to think through if they are conducting remote interviews, or indeed focus groups, is the method of recording. In our in-person focus groups, we find that a dictaphone was perfectly sufficient to produce a good quality recording. For our remote interviews, we decided to continue to use a dictaphone to avoid the data privacy and security concerns associated with storing the recording on a third-party platform. Instead, we placed the dictaphone near the laptop and phone speaker. Once we had identified exactly where that was, not necessarily where you might think. Using the dictaphone had an effect on audio quality, as the dictaphone recording of communications over speakerphone or Zoom added another layer of distortion, making the task of transcription a little harder and slower. We're now nearing the end of our data collection phase. We're in discussions with Angard Shikana, the Irish police, about conducting interviews with relevant members. And we've put a call out through criminal defence solicitors for individuals with relatively recent experience of being interviewed by Gardaí to speak to us also. We're trying to get as well-rounded a picture of the issues as possible and think it would be remiss to interview representatives of all of the professions who work within the system and not to speak also to those with experience of being under suspicion. There's much yet to do on the broader project too. We'll write an Irish report on the empirical data, but we'll also compile an overarching comparative report across the four jurisdictions. A training module will be developed and delivered on the back of this, and a final conference is yet to be arranged for summer 2021. 
While no research project ever runs exactly to its original plans, there have certainly been some challenging twists and turns on the research road of this project. We expected to need to be flexible and pragmatic, but we did not expect to have to negotiate the restrictions of a global pandemic. COVID-19 has certainly affected our research methods, but we've tried to respond as best we could and to make the most of a difficult situation. And at the end of the day, that's all anyone can do.